Bryce, what are you doing? Trying to, you know, game. <laughs> what? This game is really hard. Pac-Man? Uh, yeah. Dude, you're supposed to be playing the game for next week's episode of Arcade Bookshop. I mean... <sighs> I will. I'm really close to beating this. Right. And what about the book? Huh? We're supposed to finish a book for the podcast, too? Oh, yeah. I finished that last week. Yes! Oh, did you finally beat it? Uh-huh. The first level. Oh, boy. You can listen to new episodes of Arcade Bookshop every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your pods. You'll always find us with a controller in one hand and a book in the other. Listening to the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb James. With me today, as always, Spencer, the Miami Micro Menace Church. I don't know if I like what? the way that sounds. <laughs> what, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> Micro Menace. Um, today we have another special guest, and this is going to be a, an occurrence all month, so yeah. strap yourselves in. We got a great one today. Uh, the author of the short story collection, Tell Me What You See, Tarina Bell. Thank you for joining us. Hello. For those unacquainted with your work and you, would you like to give a brief introduction that would be far superior to what I would probably do? <laughs> well, now I feel like I'm at a job interview, Kayla. So <laughs> like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I was born to Terry and Lisa Bell in Sinking Fort, Kentucky. No, I'm actually actually was born in Hobbsville, Kentucky, and raised in Sinking Fort, Kentucky, which there's not that much of a difference. But um, I am a book publicist and I am a writer. My debut short fiction collection came out last December from Whiskey Tit. Like you said, it's called Tell Me What You See. It's a collection of 10 experimental short stories, um, basically about all of the crap that happened from 2020 to the end of 2021. So we've got a little bit of the capital in there. We've got a lot of COVID, you know, about like Alzheimer's cases being on the rise, climate change, stuff like that. So, yeah. Well, when we had Mia on, she was telling us your work is deeply political. Is it just that collection or do you tend to steer with that most of your writing? It's funny, like, I don't think of myself as a political writer. And of course, I listen to the show. I'm a fan, you know, and I heard her say that. And I was like, why do people keep saying that? You know, like, and her is my publisher, which, you know, like, I'm a publicist. So I understand that sometimes we have to frame books a certain way for people to find them on Google and all of that lovely stuff. But, but she's not the first person that I've had say that. And, you know, and it's funny because I've had people assume that I have political beliefs on both sides of the spectrum because of what I wrote. And it's like, I think it may be because like 2020 to 2021, I mean, when you invade the seat of democracy, that is an inherently political action. And when you're writing about that, I think it's easy to say that a story is political. But I considered myself much more pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny 
when you're a writer, and we've talked about this many times on here, for some reason, most, not most people, but a lot of people can't separate the artist from the art. So mm-hmm. if you, you could write something about January 6th from the perspective of the people who were there doing it and make it like it was a good thing just for a story. Yeah. Like that wouldn't be your beliefs at all. You could be as liberal as they come, but you could write something like that just to try to get in the mind frame and maybe get in the minds of the people that were there. Like, hey, this is what they thought. Maybe this is why they did it. But people just, then they just lump you in the one category and you're done. Yeah. And that goes the other yeah. way too, because if you're, you know, you write something inherently liberal, you get a whole section of the population that will just write you off and won't read your work. Especially if you're, um, if you might be more closeted on what you actually believe, like some creators and stuff like that, they're very open with like, you know, like you brought up like Stephen King. He's very open on the stuff that he, you know, that he thinks and believes. So even if he does happen to do something on the rare occasion that might lean that way, people know like that's not actually. But whenever you're a little bit closer to the Avesta on your stance and views on things, that's whenever it's kind of like throwing fuel on the fire sometimes of, right. of the speculation. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about it's like I actually kind of hate like most cause driven or what we call social action fiction. Like I won't read it. And I think it's because most of it sucks. Like I got to thinking about this and I actually had I was on Hofstra University radio, I don't know, like a month or a month and a half back or whatever. And it's funny because, um, oh gosh, sorry, total like attention deficit moment here, which I actually have been clinically diagnosed with. I'm not using that lightly. What was I going to say? What Spencer, Spencer, remind me, like, you're talking about people seeing you that way. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's funny because, like, people, people kind of really assume what I believe about stuff. And I just, I live in New York, you know, like the accent is from Kentucky originally. And I saw the difference in the way that, like, COVID affected us here, the way it impacted things down there. And I just literally wrote fictional about, like, what I saw. But the thing about it is, like, this political writing or whatever. Most of it is preachy. And it's funny because, like, I'll read 1984 and enjoy it. Like, I thought Animal Farm was really good. You know, so, like, there is, like, what you would call, like, political or, like, writing with a message that is out there that is good. But so much of it, it's like, it's not a story. It's a club. And they're beating you over the head with it. You know, like, like in Canterbury Tales, the wife of Bath, like, one of her husbands actually, like, died because, like, she hit him with a pan. And he deafened her when he hit her upside the head with a dictionary. You know, like, like it's writing like that. And my thing is, like, just tell me a story. And if that story is about politics, if that story is about grief, if that story is about, you know, like being in your apartment alone or whatever, great. But like, if I walk away and I'm like, they want to change my political beliefs or, you know, they are or are not in favor of X, as opposed to, man, that was a really good story. Like, to me, the writer's not doing their job. And I think that when you're writing when you are writing for that message, it's supposed, I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying like Stephen King is bad. Like his works don't seem to me like he's trying to push his beliefs on, you know, whatever. But, uh, uh, but to me, like if I walk away feeling like you try to push your beliefs on me instead of actually like perceiving the story and thinking about the story, I think then it's probably real, real easy to like brand somebody as writing about that or whatever. Does that make sense? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, when you quote unquote preach to people in your work, the it, it's not genuine the reader is gonna right. notice that right away and they're gonna be turned off i know i am a lot of times i mean we didn't go into it too hard on the episode with niet but i you know i was asking her some softball diversity questions uh because people always feel different with like the diversity stuff and the bipoc stuff in publishing and 
from my experience, just reading a lot of these journals, like you said earlier, a lot of the work just sucks because it's yeah. not the story first. It's about trying to get this message across. Mm. You sh it should be right. about the story, the quality of your words and your story. And if the message comes through, you did a good job. But if you're just telling the reader what to think, nobody's going to like that. I don't right. know why they publish stuff like that all the time because it's it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny because like so much of that is just like horrible. And then part of our there's a big, large segment of our society, which I continue to believe is a minority segment. But they're loud enough that people feel like they're a majority, you know, like the cancel crowd to where, you know, like like if you're like, well, that book's not good or whatever, or they're just trying to preach a message instead of actually working on the literature and making it better, like that crowd goes, well, you obviously just don't like books that are written by X people. And you're obviously just against X group, you know, whether it's gender, race, you know, whatever, you know, but the thing about it is like, you can write about those issues really, really, really well and walk away from it. You know, like, like there are some things that I read and it's like, they're just trying to shove this on me. And then on the other hand, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, but the best short story that I've read in, my guess is maybe three years, um, not mine, but it was a short story that was in the Arkansas Review. And it was about a man who is a black sheriff and he's dealing with holding the law in this Southern town where every day he has to walk by a square where like one of his ancestors was lynched. And at the same time, he's also dealing with like his son having relationship issues and his son dating a white lady, you know, and that kind of thing. And that story, I wish I could remember who wrote it to credit the writer, but that story was absolutely brilliant. Like I actually wrote in to the editor of the journal and I was like, this is, please tell the writer, this is like one of the best stories. And it wasn't because she was trying to like make me see the racial diaspora or the difficulties of being a racial minority in the South, you know, or whatever. She was writing about a man. And these were the actual lived and perceived experiences of this entire human that she created. So like, you can do it. You can have impact. Like I walked away, you know, feeling bad for this character, like he were somebody I actually knew you know, or like somebody in my hometown or something like that, you know, so you can do that. But I think when people get more caught up on the cause than they do on the character is when the writing tends to fall flat. Well, oftentimes the cause anymore in the diversity stuff is used as a crutch to prop up poor quality work, at least from what I've seen. You see it more in, in things that people pay attention to, such as movies and TV, where something is just not good. And then if people don't like it, it's because you're racist or you're homophobic or you don't like trans people, whatever box they could put you in. And it's almost a way to just not reflect on the work and go, maybe it wasn't the best work we could have put out. And yeah. I have seen that in books where it's a little different in like the literary industry, because if a story isn't good or a book isn't good, people just don't pay attention to it. I mean, there is like the, because I know Goodreads has a toxic review culture. Like people just, if they don't like an author for their political beliefs, they bomb every book with one star reviews. Oh my gosh, that Elizabeth Strout stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. That was crazy. I don't understand how how that's allowed, but I mean, they do because they'll just straight up say, oh, we didn't read the book, but the author sucks. And it's like, oh, but you got a one star and that knocks down the stars for the whole work. And that's what people see. I, uh, I wonder if like a lot of that is like, do y'all remember that TV show, The Good Wife? Like, did y'all watch it? There was this character. I'm actually rewatching it right now. And there was this character on there. He's played by Alan Cumming. 
And he's like this big political mastermind genius. And he's always doing like moves and counter moves and that kind of thing. So maybe it's just that like I've been watching, you know, this TV drama that's got like all this conflict and political stuff in it. But, you know, it's funny because like to me, like they talk about how they've got all the bots and politics that they're not even people, but they just go on and like make comments on social media. And part of me is like, you know, like who did Emily Strout like offend? Like who considers themselves to be Emily Strout's greatest enemy? That they're like, I can get all these Russian bots to make bad comments on Goodreads. Like my book will excel. I don't know. Like to me, it's like, what's the benefit in that? Like, I don't know. Go write shit of your own, you know? Like I just, instead of just like Goodreads bombing somebody, like. People go on these minor crusades and you have to think that it's just a way to distract themselves from their terrible life. That's the only thing I can make sense of yeah. it. Yeah. Because they, you see it in YouTube comments that people will go in there and argue with like, who? arguing on youtube comments who's going on reddit for hours and hours fighting with strangers about things that don't matter mm -hmm. i never no, understood that and obviously twitter or twitter x whatever the fuck it is anymore that's like <laughs> the worst place to go anymore like i just don't even use it because it's terrible but we've talked about this before if you don't like something just don't don't read it don't watch it don't you know enjoy it because you're not going to enjoy it don't yeah. listen to the music like i don't know why you have to yeah. put it out there that well my opinion on this is correct and yours is wrong because you like it it sucks and blah 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 like my thing was like i just like living in new york i just saw people dying up here nonstop. like there were more than 20 people from my church who died in the first three months or whatever like, I did not know all of them because, like, they would go to different services. Like, our church has two locations. Well, the church where I was going at the time had two locations, you know, so maybe they went to another location and that kind of thing. But, and then you'd call people back home and, you know, and like I'd call my mom and she's like, well, I can't get your daddy to quit going to Walmart. And I know he's going to bring this thing home, but he goes up there and he collects him Hot Wheels and then he'll go over to Dollar General and see what Hot Wheels they have. You know, it's like, and you'd call and people back home were just gallivanting around like it was a rash. You know, and it's so hard, you know, like, and so I just saw like all this discongruency. And so, you know, and so it's like, well, let me just write what I see, you know, and then, you know, I wrote what I see. And then when you're done reading it, you tell me what you see, you know, and to me, it was more about like opening a dialogue than trying to push. I don't know. I mean, I say that and the Capital story, which is the last one in the book. You know, I really was like pretty angry and wanting to push something there. But there it wasn't vote for this person or you should have voted this way or in the future you should vote this way. It was just more, hey, democracy is valuable, you know, and to me, part of that is understanding and appreciating that there are people who are going to disagree with you. You know, like to me, like like if you don't if you don't value people who write differently than you, who think differently than you. That's not democracy either, you know, and I just I love democracy. And so I was like, you know, what can I do to protect it? And I've actually had a friend who she's a member of Congress and both my mom and I thought that we saw her in the room that they were like trying to break into with the guns and everything. But turns out they were voting in stages because of COVID, like to approve the ballots. And so she was in her office. But both my mom and I saw her. And it just made me so mad. Like it made me on a level like that's my friend. But I was just texting her like the whole next day. That whole day I was texting with her mother. And I was like, what can I do? And I told her and I was like, do you need me to just like come and like cook and clean for you at home so you can be at work all day and fix this shit? Because no matter how you voted, we can't have that. Like we can't have people storm in the Capitol like it's a castle and Princess Bride or something. You know, like that's just not cool. I don't know, like it goes back to like, like are things inherently political if we're just writing what we see? But like to me, 
it's not my fault that those two years were political, right? Like I'm a writer. My job is just to write down what I see. And like, sometimes it's these nice Southern Gothic stories about like the short story I just finished is about a man who's in his upper sixties, you know, working class, blue collar, rural Princeton, Kentucky. And turns out that his sister went missing when they were in elementary school and his little sister was six. And one day his coon dog just like brings home this raggedy Andy, right? And his sister had a raggedy Andy that she carried everywhere. And he, you know, convinces himself that this is his sister's raggedy Andy, you know, and if his dog is bringing home this doll, maybe his sister is still alive, you know, and I wrote that because I knew multiple men growing up who had like my grandfather had a little sister die. My dad had a big sister die, you know, so like one day, you know, yeah, I'm writing about people like tromping on the Capitol because that's what I saw. And then the next day. I'm writing about this because like I've seen men that I know go through like continued grief. So to me, it's not like to go back to what Spencer was saying about like you get branded that way. Like that's something that's like happening a lot. Like I'm like, well, I've got this experimental collection that is being perceived as political just simply because of like what it's about is my next title. Like are readers going to like pick it up and be mad that they're getting, you know, like this, this very Southern rural saga of grief. I don't know, at the end of the day, you know, I just, I've got a brain, I've got hands to type with, you know, I've got a mouth to speak with, and I'm just going to write what I see. And as the world changes, the work changes, you know? I think the other side of that coin is like, yes, you have to be worried maybe a little bit what, what you could be branded as, but like you were saying, you were pulling from actual experiences and and stuff that you've known or somebody else has gone through. And I think that's what helps those stories from either from being like really crappy stories like we were talking about or being better stories because you have that actual emotion and, and experience that you're that you're telling through those, you know, through those stories. Yeah, it, it's funny because it used to be you would get if you were unlucky marked as a genre writer in a specific mm. genre and then people wouldn't take like say if you wrote literary fiction and you're a horror writer they probably wouldn't take you as seriously and it would be hard to break into other genres or other things and now it's more just about identity so whatever the mm -hmm. author identifies politically religious beliefs uh sexual you know orientation any of that stuff all of a sudden that's the big factor not what you're writing mm -hmm. it's almost like people don't generally care what stuff you're writing they just want you to fit whatever category they yeah. like right and isn't that caleb what we're doing in society i mean think about it like you know like like we used to say like what do you do it was like the first thing that we saw whenever we met somebody and i always disagreed with that question like i did a study abroad in Strasbourg, france and that's like so horribly rude over there because like i always saw what do you do is like how much money do you have but really, like it was just one of the early ways that like people try to get to know people. And now one of the very first questions that you ask people is, you know, how do you identify? What are your pronouns? You know, like in everything that you feel out. And I'm not saying that that stuff is or isn't important. I'm just saying that we've moved like you hear the phrase identity politics a lot. We are in an identity culture. So if we're thinking about, you know, the fact that authors are being identified you know, is that a change in writing? Is that a change in publishing? Or is that just culture imprinting on those two areas? It almost goes into a moral question. What's more important, who you are or what you do? So if you identify as something, like we've seen things like um, 
a lot of left, like people on the far left, hate when black people are Republicans. Yeah. Don't care what their real beliefs are or why they're Republicans. They just think that's some kind of a front. It's like, no, you should be on our side because you're a minority. And mm-hmm. that, that never made sense to me, but. Well, it's, it's lazy. It's lazy thinking like like whenever something doesn't fit, like, I don't know, I've got a friend. She says stereotypes are a real time saver. So when something doesn't fit your stereotype, you have to actually think about it and you have to actually stop what you're doing and look at it. And like we've moved so much away. And I think that COVID made this worse because like like we were isolated, like, I don't know, like here in New York, especially we we're very much isolated from one another. I did not live here during 9-11 yet, but I've got friends who did. And they say COVID was worse because they said during 9-11, at least you could like go out in the street and hug each other. Yeah, they like brought people together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and the thing about it is like, like we're moving to where like everything, like look at Twitter, like what was it like 120, 140 characters. And it's just, it's just intellectually lazy to expect people. And then also... I don't know. I mean, I was getting ready to say something that gets us like way more into politics than into writing, so I won't say it. But it's just, I don't know. And then you look at like the stories that are more preachy as opposed to like that, again, like that Arkansas review. And I may like look it up and like send you the, like, because I wrote the editor. So I may look at my email and like send it to you later for the notes because this writer, this story was so brilliant. Like, I can still see in my head scenes that she crafted. Um, like that story was brilliant, but then you get the others where it's just, you know, like, like all of the hashtags and it's because it's more intellectually lazy to just throw all of the buzzwords that an agent is going to pick up on, you know, or it's more intellectually lazy for the agent to just toss those at an editor or for the editor to just toss them at like the publishers, whatever, you know, than it is to actually sit down and go, okay. You know, this seems a little boilerplate. This seems a little carbon copy. How do I make this character more real? Well, when it comes to storytelling, and this is the problem I've come across in submitting to places, I don't understand why the identity of the author really matters. Like I, we've talked about with Miette, like I understand about, uh, you know, uplifting voices that are marginalized, but at the same time, you don't care if the firefighter that pulled you out of the building is black when they're pulling you out of the building. Yeah. But you care if the person telling you a really good story is Indian. Like, why does it really matter? I think that should be secondary. I, I mean, maybe it's just our generation because we were before like the identity stuff was super impo- you know, popular. We were the uh, politically correct generation of the 90s, like when that's like the language censoring was the big thing we had to worry about. And that's another thing we've talked about. I'll take the compliment that you think that I, well, I did actually go to college and high school in the 90s, so you're right. (laughs) That counts. Yeah. That's not too far ahead of us. We were high school in early 2000s. The reason why I think it's important, and I think that the focus is wrong. Like, we keep focusing on it being the story, and that's, like, all well and good. You know, and, like, this one particular story that I read, the character's race was inherent to the struggles that he went through as a person slash character, you know, so like if you change that, the whole story would fall apart. But again, exceptionally relevant story. The reason why I think it is important is because I want to be published. You want to be published. You know, the people listening want to be published. And as long as publishing sticks with like this whole, like I I recently learned that what the word Nepo baby means, Mm. (laughs) I had somehow missed that word until like, I don't know, two months ago. And now that I've heard it, I'm just like using it all the time. But publishing had gotten so stuck in like this whole Nepo baby thing to where it wasn't even about 
race and gender, like it wound up being race and gender to a very large degree. But if you dove in more, it was all like, I was reading this book. I'll be honest. I read this book over the weekend that was absolutely horrible, horrible. Okay. <laughs> Big five title, like, like, like was probably on par with shit I was writing in ninth grade. Let's just be honest. How'd you get okay? your ma- manuscript, Caleb? Shut up. Leave me alone. <laughs> Was, I was like, how did this get published? And then you look on the best and they're like author of, and I'm like, she's had something else published, you know, and then you go and you look it up and um, turns out, you know, like her dad was the editor of Time Magazine there it and, is. you know, like her husband or her mom or somebody was the editor of Reuters and then somebody else in her family. Oh no, her mom was the editor of Women's Wear Daily and her husband was the editor in chief of Reuters. And you started looking at all this stuff, and then her her son is an exceptionally well-known interior designer with a chain of retail stores here in New York. And so when you look at it, and you're like, oh, she knew somebody, you know? And it's like, okay. So I think that, now again, like, I don't, I'm not an editor, I'm not an agent. But what I see as a writer and publisher is that a lot of the opening up and a lot of the, we need more Black voices, we need more LGBTQ voices, you know? like the own voices movement, it's not just like there are a lot of people they talk about, like you're in middle school, you want to read a book about people that look like you or whatever. You know, I get that. That's one thing. But I do think that publishing needed to open up. Like you look at like John Kennedy O'Toole, like this is a problem that's gone back for like pretty much as long as publishing has been New York centric. Like John Kennedy O'Toole could not get Confederacy of Dunces published to save his freaking life. He killed himself over it. Okay, and then his mom takes his manuscript in a suitcase and starts going publisher to publisher and is like, look, my kid's shit is good. You people wouldn't look at it because we're Southern and he killed himself and she would not leave until they read it. It wound up winning a Pulitzer Prize. So something had to break through the whole Nepo baby shit. Well, I mean, I think Dickens had it right when, you know, it's like a tale of two cities. It's the class system, really. It's, yeah. it's who you know and how you're viewed in society that really matters. There was a, I can't remember what it was. It was an article I read years ago. It was an editor. I want to say he worked for like the Atlantic or something, like a bigger journal or a magazine, newspaper, whatever. For shit, the giggles will say it was the Atlantic. And he... um That would be Michael Curtis, but go ahead. He died recently. But probably wasn't him. Then. This was a younger okay. guy. But basically, he wasn't like a higher editor or anything. He was, well, he was an intern. It, Details don't really matter here. The point was he um, he knew a lot of people in the industry, so he knew all the secrets of how to get things published and basically how to grease the wheels. And he ended up submitting stories and getting them published with all kinds of like top reviews and stuff. And he said even himself, he's like, I don't even write anymore because my writing just wasn't good. But because of who I knew... And how I talked to people, I was able to just get all this work published. I was like, that's such bullshit. But it's like, once you have that in, it's a lot easier than just being an outsider who's trying. Which that does go with the marginalized voices, because if you have no connection to the publishing world at all, how do you even get your foot in the door? Like, if you're poor and you're black and you live in Arkansas, you're probably not sleeping with the guy who's editor-in-chief of Reuters. Well, even just through the history (laughs) of, let's just say, U.S. literature... I mean, for every book Faulkner published, would you get like one Richard Wright book? 
You know, yeah. one Ralph Ellison book, like you didn't get a lot of diverse fiction. It was just a series of white guys, right. basically. And you even had it to the point where a lot of women were using male pseudonyms just mm-hmm. to get their work published. And, or, yeah, or people initials. that, yeah, or people to accept their work. I mean, I think we've come a long way in that regard. And honestly, as, as extreme as things might have, because it kind of happened very quickly with like the voices movement and stuff. I think the pendulum starts swinging the other way and it's like easing up now. People are more focused on the oh, quality oh, yeah. work. And, and you know, now we see a lot of like, people who work for movies and TV is a, the vast diversity of, you know, coalition of people that are doing these things now. So now you do get different stories being told, which is what I, what's important to me. I love reading stories from different perspectives that, you know, aren't straight white male yeah. in his 30s. When you get those kind of views, it really can open your eyes. And I think that's important. So. That is one thing we do always, like when we had the DPW up, we always wanted to get the different voices and anyone who just had quality work, that's what we're showcasing. Right. I don't really care, you know, about your identity so much unless it's actually important to the work. That's the separation I think people have trouble making. Is your identity actually important to the work you're doing or is it just a way to make you stand out? If it's just to help you stand out, I don't know if that's the best thing. Well, and I don't know, I don't know if that's a battle that anybody even would be able to win, you know, like if you did decide to like take up that and try to go after it. No. I just looked at the email and the writer's name is Robin. And I'm trying to see because I'm looking at the email chain and the writer's name of that one short story. Okay, it was Robin Kozak, I guess maybe K-O-Z-A-C-K. The short story is called Roads and Bridges, and it was in their April 2023 issue. Was but that, it, a, was that online, or do you have to I don't it? think that they're – I know they're a print journal. I They're an awesome review. I published with them once maybe like five years ago, and I've gotten a free subscription ever since. And when I moved, they still found me. So, um, so that's how I get it. I don't know if it's also online or if they do select stories. But it, I mean, it's flat out amazing. It's, it's, it's one of the things like, like if, I don't know, I personally have never read a Best American Short Stories where I liked more than like two of the stories in it. But like if they actually published stories that were good and not just written by boring people in New England, um, mm-hmm. it would, it would be in there. It should be in there. Like it would have been in like Best New Stories from the South if that were still around. Like it's, it's a damn good story. Yeah, I'll have to definitely check that out because yeah. I've been looking for different fiction and I'm just, it's been a struggle. Like we've talked about many times, the just the contemporary fiction scene is not great. I mean, that's that one thing we were excited when Mia came yeah. on is because you guys, the Whiskey Tid, actually publish things that are different. And yeah, I mean, different's not always good, but, you know, I, I trust her her eye on the work, I would imagine that she's not publishing garbage. So um, there's a lot of people that or a lot of journals and stuff, though, that when I read it, I just I don't I can't care because even the writing style, if, if it's not lazy, if it's well written, it's still boring. Like the story just usually they go nowhere. Yes. They just have like this no ending. And it's just this meandering semi ideological pro. I don't I don't know what these people are doing, it's but they get published. Language people. I yeah. call them like like and they're all about well they just use such beautiful language fine write a poem you know like like for fiction I want you to tell me a story like we uh, we brought up before those are the uh, smart feeling people they like smelling their own farts the, yeah that's, yeah yeah high society yeah. folk 
They, they, it's it's good work, but they don't know why and can't tell you. <laughs> yeah. If you well, don't know, you just don't work, know. Like, the first five stories of it I read, which were all apparently written by five different people, when I looked at the table of contents, you know, and I get like like magazines have to have a vibe. Like you have to know like if you're reading the Paris Review versus Whiskey Tit Journal, like you've got to kind of know what you expect because that's how you get subscribers. Like if you picked up Vogue magazine and there were all these articles on like men's cologne, like as a Vogue subscriber, you'd be like, what? This is like a lady's fashion, you know? So like you do kind of have to stick with the vibe, but they don't have to all sound exactly alike. And there's just like so much of it. It's like in a way it kind of reminds me of Marcel Proust, except not inventive. And the way that like Proust would just like go on and be like, I remember touching this doorknob as a child and when I ate the Madeleine with my coffee, it would crumble. And, you know, and it's just, just say, you know, I, I ate a little cake with my coffee, you know, like, or just leave that out and get to the important part of the story. Like, it's just such a swing from like Hemingway and, you know, and like and Cheever. And it's funny because like they all, like all the people who write this way quote John Cheever. And I'm like, Cheever was a minimalist, yo. Yeah, complete opposite. It's funny you mentioned that because I was telling Spencer off air, I started for the other podcast I do, I'm reading Zone 1 by Col- Colson Whitehead. It's supposed to be a zombie story, and it's since Halloween's coming up, he's like, oh, that'd be fun. And it, he he's writing this, so like so far it's written exactly what you said, where it's like, I don't give a fuck about the color of the tea and what the... the you know, how the cream curdle, like you just go into these descriptions that don't matter and have no bearing on the story. I was like, I want to get to the zombies and I want to get to the cool stuff. It's like, it's they call it prose porn. That's a term I learned today, actually. Prose porn? Yeah, prose porn. It's when people, okay. are, it's almost like the, the purple prose of yesteryear, but now it's it's worse, I guess. Yeah. It's because at least the purple prose. They had some nastiness going on. Well, the purple prose was prettier, I yeah. think, you know, like. She said Proust. It could be considered purple sometimes, but at least it's inventive, not just sounding like a Shakespeare knockoff or something. It's like, why are you just trying to sound smart? You're using words that don't need to be used. Use the best word, not the biggest word. Right. And you can go on about something like if we want to chat craft for a minute. Like you can go on and on about something and it still just be like wonderful. Like have either one of y'all read Light in August by William Faulkner? It was his Pulitzer Prize winner, I think. I have not. I just started reading Faulkner this year, actually. Yeah, it's I, I used to not be a Faulkner fan when I was a kid because again I have attention deficit and he just like like he'll have like a three page paragraph and I just could not do that like as a high schooler or even somebody like new in college. But his light in August, he has like this three page deal where he's basically talking about like this kind of this kind of like bad preacher guy who's like sleeping around and doing all of these things and he's like going into the character's motivation. And he starts talking about like the bad preacher's grandfather was a Confederate general and he was killed on the battlefield and he had a galloping horse and there was a statue made about the horse, you know, and like in all of these details that are seemingly unrelated and, you know, looking what the gravestone looked like and stuff like that. But he does it at such a beat and it's like he takes those details. So like sometimes the fact that you're drinking coffee or sometimes the fact that like the, the wall is yellow or whatever is important. But he does it with such a beat that it actually feels like a galloping horse. And within like those three pages, he pretty much tells it's almost like like Mark Twain in a way, you know, it's almost like like a story in a story to where he within those three pages, he pretty much just like 
tells the story of like this grandfather and how the horse was still beating. And when the preacher laid down at night, he could feel the, he could feel the hoofs and he could hear, you know, hear the galloping and the pressure and the pressure building up within his heart, you know, and all this stuff to where you get to the end of that and you're just like, wow. You know, and it's just like, this is why he won a Pulitzer Prize, like this right here. And you go back and you read it and you try to figure out how he did it. But when you just get so caught up, like in those details and you just get, you know, like, like Spencer said, like fart smelling, you know, like, like that's not anything that anybody, you know, a hundred years from now is going to say wow about. It's just not. And I want to, I want to write shit where people say wow. Well, that's the thing that people always knocked Hemingway for was his minimalistic style while it was, I wouldn't say revolutionary, but it was a new thing when he came out with that style. But what a lot of people overlook is exactly what you're describing with Faulkner is the hypnotic uh, way right. he writes where it lulls you into this weird state where by the end of it you go, holy shit, what did I just read? And you want to yeah. reread it. And yeah. while Faulkner did it with a higher vocabulary and more of a, I think a more beautiful use of language. Hemingway did it with like this blunt, like almost like an ax, you know, you're just chopping at it, but it gets you into this weird rhythm where you're like, wow, that was still really pretty. Even though the biggest word he used was five letters, mm. but I, I love writing like that. And like how you were saying, you know, something about like a yellow wall or the things you describe, if you do do it properly, it has meaning. So if you are describing yeah. like a guy in a bar drinking whiskey, if it's not important to the story, you move on. If the him drinking the whiskey has something that has to do with not just his personal preferences, but to the story itself to get in the head of that character. Why does he like his whiskey straight? What is it about the aroma that get, you know, the burn, the, you know, the color, whatever it is that means something to that character. If you go into the descriptions of that, you actually learn more about the character without actually describing the character. Yeah, like like this character in Light in August, he's rumored to have made a deal with the devil like for personal ambition, you know? And it's like when, you, when you're like going into this whole thing about like even the grandfather's horse was ambition, ambitious with the constant galloping, like that adds to the character. You know, to me, like, like there is a place for beautiful language, but it has to be combined with, with rhythm and pace. It has to be combined with character or plot, or it's just fart smell. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever used that context outside of Kentucky. <laughs> uh, Spencer brings the class to the show. That's yeah, why well, he's here. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I stole that from uh, South Park. Yeah, that, from any, regardless. <laughs> It works. I just I just keep thinking about my brother, like when he would have all of his high school friends over and they would watch WWE and then like one of them would stand up and fart and he would like wave it. <laughs> Wafted up yeah. to himself, you know, the brand. Is well, like, not to himself. He would just like wave behind him toward others. <laughs> well, that's just, the, that's assault. Doing do a little right. shake. Some, <laughs> of these stories are, some of these stories are wafting up toward themselves. You know. In the grand old days, that was a funny gag. Now that gets you locked up. Anywhere you do it, I guess. Oh, I lost my train of thought, but I always like a good uh, fart antidote. So, yes. WWE, because I had the, I think most of us who aren't high society have had similar experiences. My brother did the same thing to me when we watched wrestling. People oh, yeah. wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the second podcast in a row that I've recorded where I had like somebody has brought up farting. <laughs> I'm like wondering if I can make it like a trifecta with the next one I record. I don't know. That might be a sign to write a very literary story about, about flatulence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, seriously, like like there are all of these life experiences that are outside of what are being written about currently. And I mean, I don't know, like now I kind of feel like I've been challenged, Caleb. Like, well, think of like you could write a very Kafka-esque story because the, the shame yeah. of people when yeah. it comes to farting in public or you literally will be uncomfortable yeah. or even borderline in pain because you don't want to release something that's very natural and everyone does it, but we act like they don't for some reason. And you could just go into this whole inner turmoil that in a battle, yeah, that your character has because he doesn't want to fucking let one out in church. You can write it and submit it to Whiskey Tit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's uh, you know I've been trying to crack that tit. I don't want to get in there. I've been in fucking what is like a year and a half now, and uh, not even in progress. Just just received an old. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll get in there one day. That that's been happening a lot lately, though. There's a lot of. uh, journals that i just say you know i forget about and then i get an email like a year later i'm like who the fuck is the the blue boob mm. review like i don't remember well, that one to me like like i had one like to me like if you've held on to it for three years like a form rejection is a little crass like i'm gonna want a personal rejection after that yeah i've had a buddy who uh he had one that was from like 2016 and they finally got back to him and it was like, did your journal shut down? Like, what happened? Like, why did you just get back? And it's like, didn't care for it. It's like, thank you for submitting, but it wasn't quite right for it. And it's like, fuck off. Like, you can't even say he didn't like it. just Or uh, you didn't read it because it was in your queue for so long. Yeah. You just forgot about it. I was looking at your, because uh, I read a couple of your stories today. Thanks. And you have gotten accepted and published by some of the ones that I've been trying to get into. Like, you're an anti-heroin chic. I, I tried to... I, tried twice for that one um who else was it uh the offing i actually just submitted to today so that's a that's a cool one i'm like yeah their fiction subs opened up today i don't know when today is going to be to our listeners they'll probably be closed by the time you know because like a lot of this stuff publishes so quick like i was talking to a friend today and he just sent his latest novel to coffeehouse press and he said they were only accepting 200 submissions and that it took them like three minutes to get them all in. So I don't know if like the offing will still be open. Well, I was looking at the Irish market last night and they have like the exact opposite submission periods than U.S. journals do. It seems because a lot of U.S. journals are open now, but most of the like I only found one Irish uh, Banshee it was the only Irish journal I saw that was accepting work right now. The rest of them were and I just thought it'd be cool to get published in the Irish. Journal. Yeah. Uh, and they're all, that's another cool thing. They're all like print journals. Like a lot of US-based ones, yeah. most of them are online now, but I like some print journals. It just feels real, you know, when you hold it and you see your name in the book. You're like, that's yeah. real, damn it. You get something you can show somebody. Yeah, I put it on your shelf and be yeah. a pompous ass. I love I love Your, your mother can put it on the coffee table and then your dad can sit his Diet Coke on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something you need to have in the in the crapper so for like yeah. have nothing in there for whenever people read just your stuff and yeah. just a contributor copy that would be so freaking hilarious like that's something that, like you would never ever ever see like to go into like somebody's bathroom and there's a copy of the paris review <laughs> like in one of those little wood you know like v things yeah. you know like i had an uncle that he had puzzles in the bathroom and i was like really really like i'm just gonna like do it like i'm gonna pick up that pencil has been in here <laughs> i used to because i got like a dollar for like two years or something a while ago for the new yorker so i used to just put the new yorker in the bathroom and it's like this is like the shittiestly printed mm-hmm. paper like that's their paper 
I don't even I don't even think it constitutes this paper. It's almost like the plastic bags you get at Walmart. Like it's this thinnest, shittiest paper. You get you get more shit on your hands from reading the book than when you do from after wiping. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just not the greatest. I don't know. I maybe because they publish so much. I don't know. It's like you're the New Yorker and you just like pay a nickel to get your shit published. But uh, yeah, I used to have those in the bathroom. But I like the idea of the Paris Review because that's like a nice book. You know, they they no, actually look it- good. It's funny what you mentioned about Ireland. Like, there are tons of people from other... Like, if you look at, like, Duotrope and stuff, like, there are tons of people from other countries who try to get published with the U.S. lit mags, but you're actually only, like, the second other person that I've talked to that has tried to get published in, like, Europe. Um, Like, I public Street Cake is somebody over in England that has published my stuff, and it's... Like, they actually... Like, the only Best of the Net nomination that I've gotten came from them. You know, but there are some actually really great literary magazines that are in Ireland. You know, like, it's really kind of cool, but you don't see, like, at least there's not a lot of talk about us learning to submit over there. And I wonder sometimes, you know, it's like, are ours more open or do we just not know about theirs? Or, you know, it's it's interesting about well, what you said about the transition periods being opposite. Well, I was looking at a bunch of international, I mean, I always check, like, you know, a couple times a year, I look at the Irish journals and the English journals. Uh, we had uh, our buddy Matt Holland. He's an English writer. He came on a while ago, and he was telling me about. I think it's just in Liverpool where he's at. They have like this, just this amazing literary scene, and there's just all these journals opening up, and you know, most like I said, most of it's print stuff. And I was just like, that's really cool because I never thought to think of like you think of like the Dublin Review in Ireland or something or some of the bigger ones, but you wouldn't think of why not just try some smaller ones. Like, does it really matter if it's, you know, yeah. this big time journal? Like, it's still a credit and you still get a book and people are reading your story. And I think it's cool to get international readers. Um, yeah. Like- well, if you, if you look at the stats, like actual literature sells better in the UK, like percentage wise of like overall sales. Literary fiction has a higher percentage over there than it does here. You know, I mean, now, like, you still had, like, like the former Prince Harry, which if you're a South Park fan, oh, my gosh, that was an episode. <laughs> but, like, you still had him, like, doing his biography and it's selling well over there and that kind of stuff. So there's still just, like, downright trash, you know. But, you know, like, like there's going to be people who want to read the equivalent of, like, potato chips for a book, just like people want to eat potato chips instead of, like, a good meal all the time. You know, but they actually do publish it. It's funny because, like, Tell Me What You See actually got a mention in the bookseller which is like their equivalent of Publishers Weekly over there. And it's funny because like the places over here, like Publishers Weekly didn't do anything on it, but their version over there did something on it. You know, so it's interesting how their tastes, like they accept experimental fiction over there a lot more readily than we do. Like it's it's interesting, like, but we don't really talk about, like you don't go to like AWP or any of that stuff and they talk about like cracking the UK market or whatever. The three things that really stood out to me when I was reading some of the, those journals, for instance, like I submitted to that Banshee and then I was reading some of the stories because I'm an asshole and I didn't read first, but you know, just like, I just want to submit my story and I hope it's a good fit. But I was reading like some of the work on there and I was like, oh, damn, the quality is really good. Like that's going to be tough to get into. And then I was looking at just some of the other journals and it was like, it seems across the board, the quality of writing is really good. Their lyrical prose is still very popular over there. And surprise, I mean, I guess it's not surprising because, you know, like in England, they love Shakespeare. Like we have a couple of buddies who just love Shakespeare to death. So they're all about sonnets and writing stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But actual rhyming lyrical poetry is still super popular. Whereas over here, I couldn't tell the last time I read in any journal a poem that even rhymed. 
Well, and then they would like reject it because they'd be like, that's too trite. Yeah. You know, and it's actually harder to write in Alexandrine. It's like in rhyming couplets or whatever, you know, like it just, yeah. But it's, it's like Extra Teeth is one that's in Scotland that publishes a lot of experimental literature. Like they're, they're willing to take a chance over there. Like, whereas here, like we were talking about every single story reads like it could be written by the exact same person. Like if you pick up a literary journal over there, there's actually some diversity, you know, to go back to that word again, of actual thought and style and, you know, in, in, in writing. I would like to think that a part of it is just our education system sucks in this country. <laughs> But another issue, I think, is just that with the capitalism in the, the system in place, publishers, it's not even that they don't want to publish different stuff. They can't afford to. Like if something just offends everybody or just sucks or what, like people just don't like it and nobody buys that issue, a lot of places they just go under if they don't hit a certain amount of sales. But, but I would argue that that's lazy business. Go back and look at Lolita. Lolita was published by a big five publisher. That is you know, true. You think about like there's there are fewer things more offensive than a man talking about like infantilizing over how amazing it was to kidnap and rape like an 11 year old girl. When's the last time though you saw like a Nabokov style work? And, right. You know, big five right. publishing anything and, like and that. To me, I'm like, is it like like I don't know. My answer for everything is intellectual laziness, which is also very intellectually lazy of me <laughs> to have as my constant answer. But like to me, I'm like, is it intellectual laziness among editors or the people that they have to give like their profit and loss statements to whenever they're like, this is how this book is going to do or whatever. But, you know, or is it just that the bottom line for the big five has really just gotten that tight with like the cost of paper going up and the purchases of books going down and that kind of thing. You know, but to me, like when is I mean, really, that's a that's a darn good question. When is the last time that a big five publisher took a risk i honestly can't think of anything yeah nothing jumps to my mind yeah i, re I really can't think of anything because but, I, I, but again that goes in with just like we we're talking about like the contemporary writing of like of things just in general not standing out so they've could put a, something out but none of us know about it and it, it didn't do well or yeah. something well I, I mean, I don't know. Like, like I was a reviewer for The Guardian and all these places for a while, and I never saw anything cross my desk. Like, I'm looking right now. Lolita published in 1955, and then I was like, well, what about, like, Jack Kerouac and The Beats? On the Road published in 1957. So what I want to know is, like, I don't know. Like, did something happen in, like, the 70s and 80s that, like, made them lose their balls? I don't, I don't know. Well, you had the work of Toni Morrison, which did well. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy didn't do he, he was just out of print until all the pretty horses which was like a commercial success because it was his most commercial book but before that nobody was reading blood meridian yeah. or any of you know because he kills babies and incest and all kinds of shit in his books but maybe when you got to david foster wallace you got some different kind of experimental fiction there was a lot of copycats of that but well yeah. you got truly capote would have been like late 50s or 60s again I mean, it's rare I get excited about any new book coming out. Okay, so Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace was 1996. So it's interesting because you were talking earlier about that shift in the culture like right after the 90s. That I can't think of anything from like like 2000 on. When did Gravity's Rainbow come out? Sam, I'm not familiar with that. What is, I'm going to show my ignorance here. What's Gravity's Rainbow? Uh, Thomas Pynchon. That's... Uh... One of the lines of David Foster Wallace, very okay. experimental, super one of 
It's like Infinite Jets. It's considered one of those. You have to read it, but nobody reads it because it's so fucking hard. 1973. Yeah, that's a lot earlier. I think Pynchon's still alive. I think he took the place as the America's greatest living writer, but he doesn't write anymore. So does that count? I don't know. The last, let's say, 20 years, okay? Last 24 years since 2000. What's really coming out that excites anyone or pushes boundaries or anything? Like Lolita, yeah. you're not, I, I don't know. I can't name a single book. That's sad, but I mean, I'm sure there's something. Uh, I'm maybe like right a, now, I'm looking at my bookshelf and like the closest thing to genre bending that I can see has been published since then is Outlander. Ooh, it's got time travel and a romance. <laughs> what, what I probably one of my most where like experimental books from the past couple of years is The Hike, yeah. which we just happened to find by doing a list article of weird books. Yeah, and we just happened to uh, stumble across that book and it ended up being like really good. But at the same time, like Drew McGarry is not a best selling no, author as no, far as I not, know. No. I mean, I'm sure his books sell fine, but, well, you know, we're not talking it, about. It's, yeah, and it's the big five taking the risk. Like a lot of these people, like I'm looking and I am seeing some books that, that are pushing you know, like pushing what fiction can be or whatever. But the, when I look at them, they're all like independent presses, you know, like, like, and it's funny, like I actually saw like, like y'all know what those masterclass things are. My sister-in-law gave me her free one for Christmas once. Like, yeah, you know how, we've, like, we've watched the Neil Gaiman, the, I watched yeah. Salman Rushdie, Walter Mosley, and I was actually a beta tester for the Joy Harjo's poetry okay. masterclass. So yeah, yeah we're familiar. Joy- Doris Carol Oates has got one on there, and she was talking about, like, are we really pushing a short story to be all that it can be? You know, and so, like, I started writing in all these different formats. Like, what if I shaped a short story, like, the size of the eye, like, that looked like the eye chart when you go to the doctor? You know, like, what if I wrote a short story about a woman who has Alzheimer's, and I did it through using a razor? You know, like, let's push with form or whatever, but you don't. And, and, and I apologize, Miss Oates, if you're listening, you know, it'd be a great way to meet you. You can call me and I'll talk to you about it head on. But, you know, you don't even see Joyce Carol Oates pushing the edge anymore. She's out there saying that we all ought to be pushing the edge. Well, I wrote a story that was about a dementia patient. And the story is written as the weird, broken up, rhythmic memories of the dementia patient. So you don't even know it's a dementia mm. patient. And for the It's almost like a dreamlike situation. Yeah where you're just going through what that kind of brain would process. And no one wanted it. Everyone hated it, as far as I can tell. Like, I didn't get any good feedback or anything on it from publishers. But the when I looked up, like th- I, f- I think we did it on the show, like um, what you shouldn't write about because publishers are sick of it. Dementia and Alzheimer's was like number one. Man. Cancer Seriously? was like number two. Yeah, they don't want those stories. They just won't read them. Like the, 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 it was an editor, and they just said, we're so sick of these stories that we just won't read them. Even though my story, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned it in the cover letter, because if you read it, you wouldn't know until the second half where yeah. the ball drops. But it's just like, eh. Well, well and that's learn. one of those things, like like you were talking about your views on diversity earlier. What pisses me off is the trigger warning. Like, I I had an edit, like, writing about COVID during COVID, okay? So, like, I'm trying to, I got this book, so COVID technically... I think we were like legally in a pandemic for like two and a half years. Right. So I'm in year two trying to get the short stories that wound up being in my collection later published. And, you know, like there was one where the guy was just like, I love it. It's exactly the sort of thing that we should be publishing. You're striking the tone that we want for our magazine. Like it was a brand new and they only had like one issue out, you know, and he said, but the thing about it is he said, we're all just so worn out on COVID, you know, and it's like, and then, 
you know, he said, I saw I sent another story in and it had to do with cancer. And he said, well, here's the thing. He said, you know, we really just don't want anything that has to do with cancer. You yeah. know, and I'm like, oh, I mean, I this on your website. And I think like his mom had died of cancer and I get it. But when did we become afraid to write about things that are so prevalent in our lives that were quote unquote worn out on it? You know, like, like, and then, and then people a hundred years from now are going to look back at our generation and want to know like, like what the times now were like through our fiction and, and none of these things that are supposedly major in our culture are going to be in there because we're jaded out on them. I just. Do you think the burnout doesn't come from the cancer stories, the Alzheimer stories, the mentally challenged relative stories, but more on poorly done ones that are just supposed to, you know, tug at the heartstrings? Because I'm sure if you're an editor, you're getting inundated with a lot of those stories, at least, you know, during certain periods when those were real popular you're getting so many cancer stories and what 95% of them are not good stories because most of the work just isn't good anyway. There probably are a lot of people writing about cancer because there are a lot of people who have cancer, but like I'm, I was very surprised that you said that they're inundated with like, you know, like, like mental illness or, or, or Alzheimer rather, or uh, mentally challenged people because I don't see a lot of those stories in print. Um, in the UK, they tried to put together like fiction about Alzheimer to do like a list of some sort of Alzheimer project that pretty much like their equivalent of the Alzheimer Association over there did. And they were only able to get like five books. And then they wound up shutting the project down because they couldn't get enough sent stuff sent to them. Which, of course, when my book came out, I sent it to them. They're like, oh, well, we're not collecting it anymore. But, you know, we'll write it down in case we do go back to doing it. But like to me, like I don't see a lot about that. Like I've only seen... Again, like now I don't review anymore, but when I reviewed, I got, I got so many books sent to me. Oh my gosh. The first year of COVID, I lived in a doorman building and we had all of these rules about packages being allowed up because we didn't know if we could touch anything yet. And so any package that came in, so I got all these free books sent to me, which I mean, I hate to be like complaining about free books, right? But all these books that like people were wanting me to review and my doorman would have to put on gloves. He would have to wipe the package down. The package would then have to go into the elevator. I would then have to take it out of the elevator and before and then no one was allowed to be in the elevator at the same time as the Jeez. package was coming up. And then I would have to take the package out and clean the package myself with my own gloves and my own Lysol wipes for bringing it for letting it set out there for so long for the Lysol wipes to have the 72 hours or whatever, because we were dropping dead up here and we had no idea why. And so every single time that Harlequin sent me a fucking romance and I don't even romance, I grew to hate their press. But, you know, the good thing is I really did see pretty much everything that we were publishing because since everything was shut down, there were no in-person events anymore publishers like used to they would ask like do you want a copy of this and they just got to where they were sending everything out to everybody because they weren't able to have their in-person events anymore and so they're stuck with all these advanced reader copies in a warehouse somewhere so they just start dispatching them you know like my building actually had a talk with me and i'm like trust me like i don't know that you were supposed to register when a package was going to possibly come like again we were dying and we did not know why Okay. And every single one of those that came could kill me. It could kill my doorman. We had no idea. It could kill the male lady. Like we had no idea, no idea, you know? And, and the thing about it is like, which now looking back, it's so silly because we know that it wasn't transmitted by touch. And we went through like, 
They continued to put food deliveries on the floor of the elevator for three years. I'm not joking. Okay. You know, but, but the thing about it is like every single one of these I got, and I only saw one that was on, um, uh, it was a, written by a woman who she actually does have a sister who is low IQ special needs. And it was called Frederick's Sisters Are Living the Dream. And it's the only one that I saw for like, you know, like, like even in the couple of years before the pandemic, which admittedly before the pandemic, I didn't get a copy of like everything like I did during the pandemic. You know, but, and it was good. And part of why it was good was because she knew what she was talking about. And I'm blanking on her name. I feel bad because she's a lovely writer. She lives up in Westchester. She's got blonde hair. I met her in Bryant Park, you know, but what do you do? I'm pretty sure on that article, the main, like the top ones you weren't allowed or not allowed, but they just weren't reading anymore. Alzheimer's stories, cancer stories, anything dealing with mental disability. And See, but that sounds more to me like that individual didn't want to read them as opposed to the journal being full up on them. That's what I would think. Um, and the, the other big one was like divorce stories. And I, I, I remember, I think I may even said it in that episode. Yeah. It's like, what, just don't write about the human condition, basically. Yeah. Don't write about that's anything a that's a story. Yeah, that's a highly personalized list. And then that's where we get to like, like, should that person even be a gatekeeper when they're so out of what it takes to create anything that they expect writers to basically cater to their own personal little individual wish list. Like, like to me, like, should you really even be an editor in charge of a journal when you're expecting everybody to know every little thing that could possibly trigger you that has to do with every little bit of your history? Like, sorry, trigger warnings get me triggered. They just do. I can't remember what it was, but there was a horror anthology it was either a horror anthology or a podcast or something where either submitted to, I, I really can't remember, but they had a trigger warning. I think it was an anthology, a trigger warning for everything that was going to be in the anthology. It was, it's not out yet. It was one that was coming out and they had a list of like one story trigger warnings and it was just like a shitload of hashtags. You can have Why five pages of trigger warnings. Yeah. Like it's ridiculous. Like if you are, if you need a trigger warning, maybe you need therapy. Yeah. Like if you can't handle reading certain subjects well, or words. And I mean, I get it. Like when the episode of Downton Abbey came out where the Anna character was raped, there were lots of women who had been raped who were like, I really would have liked to have skipped that episode. And I get it because like when you're watching Downton Abbey, you don't expect rape. That's completely out of the blue. But if you're going to put a trigger warning on Lolita may contain child abuse, something's wrong with you. Like to me, it's just and then also I would argue that like the rape line on Downton Abbey was a bad storyline and that it wasn't well executed, you know. But um, but to me, like there have actually been there's actually been study after study that has proven that trigger warnings actually make somebody's emotional care worse compared to them just reading it. Because like if the whole point, like let's say that you cannot hear the word tomatoes, that every time you hear the word tomato, you fall into a, into just like a flit, a fit, right? So if you go, this story contains tomatoes, guess what? Ah, I'm thinking about tomatoes. I'm in a fit. Okay. As opposed to like, if you're just reading it and then, and then you're like, well, do I read it? Cause it's got tomatoes in it. I don't know. I mean, I've really got to deal with this tomato obsession and 
you know, and, and maybe I should read it to get over my tomato. And I don't know how, you know, how much are the tomatoes involved? How often do they say tomatoes to where like your friend over it and you get yourself in this frenzy as opposed to like, if you're just reading the story about a guy that goes to the grocery and you're like, well, you know, the context there, which was the problem with Downton Abbey, you know, it's like the context here is that, you know, he might like, I'm reading this paragraph and he's wandering over to the produce aisle uh, it might bring up my tomato thing. Let me just like kind of skim real quick. Oh, he's at the meat now. We're good. You know, like, like it, the point of a trigger warning, like it makes you think about that thing. And so to me, it's, it's just self-defeatist. There's pros and cons of the trigger warning from a sales perspective. If you have, for instance, that horror uh, journal or anthology, if they have trigger warnings, you know, may contain scenes of serial murder or whatever, that might be something that the audience goes, ooh, because it's a horror audience. Like, yeah, that's what the fuck I want. So it's almost like just a quick, okay, that's what I want to want to see. But the downside of the trigger warning from a sales perspective, actually more of a writing perspective, it's kind of tough if you have like a twist in your story or you have a major plot point or something and that's the trigger warning and they mm. fucking slap that on the beginning. So yeah. the whole time the reader's like, well, when's this rape scene coming? And they're like, exactly. That's why trigger warnings are actually worse for your mental health, according to multiple studies from multiple universities. You know, now I do. Um, I did a lot of signings back home, like one in an area art museum and like one in my public library and that kind of thing when my book first came out. And I did have a lot of people who brought their kids with them. And I did tell them before their kid picked up the book, I would be like, hey, you know, just so you know, like I see, you know, Josephine is reaching for a copy or whatever. We might want to check with your mom. Mom, this has some adult words in it, you know, and like Josephine, I wrote this. I just want to know, you know, like I wrote this for grownups. So mom might want to look at it. And then I would tell mom it does have photographs in it of what the pandemic looked like in New York. And, you know, and, and then sometimes they'd get it and sometimes they didn't. And it's like you're trying to figure out a way to say, hey, before your kid picks up this book, it's got pictures of dead bodies in it. Yeah. You know, like they're covered because they're on a gurney, you know, but there's one story where the whole story is told on the main character's phone and her friends are tweeting her pictures of the refrigeration trucks with like the line, can you believe this? You know, and it's like, so like, like I will, like there is some responsibility. And then like Whiskey Tit set up at the Brooklyn Book Festival this last weekend and we did have some teenagers come up and it's like, you know, like, like, I want to say these books aren't for you, you know, but like at the same time, you know, like, like there's nothing printed on the book, like on the back of the book, it just says, you know, this is about COVID. This is about, you know, it's about the last two years. It contains stories about COVID. It contains, you know, stories about the capital and other things. And then like, like you just kind of have to use your own fortuitedness to realize, you know, hey, we're talking about COVID in New York. It's probably going to be about dead people on some level. If you hide the truth, you minimize what really happened. We, like our generation, we were what, eighth grade, ninth grade. I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened. Yeah. So we watched it on TV as it happened, yeah. which they yeah, had that can fuck up a lot of people. But at the same time, we were there. We saw what happened. We there's no telling us, oh, that didn't happen. There's no, you know, Holocaust denying that goes yeah. on because we saw what happened. But right. when you get generations of people where they try to hide these things mm -hmm. or they don't tell them about it or they try to censor history or like, as in the case in like Florida and Texas where they don't want certain books read in school. 
that's when you get into this weird space where now you have generations of people growing up thinking that wasn't that bad. That wasn't yeah. like a harsh. That wasn't well, really anything. Slavery. It, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because like like that's the angle that I actually take on the Cavill story, and I, I kind of feel like I'm ruining it for everybody, which is another reason I'm kind of anti-trigger warning because a lot of times they're spoilers. Like, let's be honest. You know, but my story, it's set, I don't know, 100, 200, however many years in the future. And instead of using the eye chart to test somebody's vision, they use the picture from the Capitol. And like, there's this one little girl that she's like, this isn't right. And she starts flipping out because like, she's seen it for the first time. And like, and the doctor and the nurse, everybody are like, oh no, it's just fine. This is the new normal. You're just fine. You know, but that's, that's the thing. If we don't get this down, I won't say that history will misremember it because history will be what it was. History is what happened. But the way that we tell and relay history will be inaccurate. And that is how our country, our world, we as individuals, our culture continue to make future mistakes is we're not able, you're not able to learn from mistakes of the past if you never appropriately learned what actually did happen in the past. Which I think that's our responsibility as writers. Like you said, you don't necessarily want to be a political writer or right. anything, but you have to tell the, you know, the story of what you saw and what happened. So that's our responsibility because not everyone can do that. And if you skirt right. that responsibility, then you just have, like you were saying, you get people who will never learn the proper history or what really happened. Because a lot of times it's not what you read in the history books that teach you what happened. It's the voices that were actually there to experience it, the Anne Frank's diaries, things like that. That's right. what's really important. And once you start censoring those or getting rid of them, then you just have chaos. You just have like this, yeah. whatever side wants you to believe this, that's what you're going to believe because that's all you know. Uh, yeah. And it just has like this weird thing to it. Then like, yeah, because it'd be like, Writing a story that took place during like prohibition, but not have any prohibition stuff yeah. going on during like you know during the story or anything like that. It's just like your own like weird version of it. Yeah, you just like oh, I wasn't around for any of that, but I'm gonna write about it. Yeah. Like that's it's not gonna work. Yeah, but it's like to kind of bring us a little bit full circle. Um, you know, like like I was talking earlier about my friend who's a member of Congress, and I was like, what can I do to help? And her answer was, you can write about it. You know, it just goes toward what Caleb was saying about, like, we can do this. Not everybody can. Well, like I said, that's the responsibility we have. And I think that's very important is to always show the truth. Um, yeah. We are over the hour mark, so we got to wrap this up because my dog is going to be freaking out. Yeah. My wife comes home. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, if you listen, to this, I always wonder if they listen. To, we get the downloads, but how long yeah, do they, they listen to you? <laughs> I like to think they listen to the end. I think it depends on how interesting they are. Like, like I know Spencer and I are rocking it. I'm not quite sure about you, Caleb. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I've heard it all before. Um, so are interesting. We're all interesting. We talk about farts enough. That, people, yeah. that, that usually hooks them back in. That's, yeah, the that's are, our audience. Yeah, they yeah. hear about the farts and the drinking. and the, They're about to hit stop and they're like, farts, okay. You wait gotta a minute, I gotta rewind that part. Well, yeah, now you've got, you got to get a corporate sponsor from KO Pectate. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's the promo time. What would you like to promote? Social media, websites, books, all that fun stuff. Just just read me. Um, I don't care if you buy it or not. I mean, I want you to buy it, but, uh, uh, you know, go get it at the library. Tell me what you see and then read it. And then when you're done reading it, tell me what you see. And that's TarinaBell.com if you just wanted the easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you said anything. <laughs> I mean, that works. 
Some people they go on and on and on for an hour. Other people they just yeah, just look it up. Yeah, look it up. That's why I'm, I'm gonna look it up. Speaking of looking up, if you want to look us up and find out stuff we do and post and publish, we got stickers, got coasters today. Got DPW coaster. coasters. You can check that all out at DPW Podcast. Just Google it. I'm not listing all the stuff. Uh, Spencer's OnlyFans is a weird one. He's yeah. the Miami micro menace. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does that entail? Just small crimes. Small crimes. <laughs> <laughs> micro crimes that's all stealing pennies yeah yeah okay i can get down with some micro crimes like things that people don't notice for a long time yeah and uh, then when they notice it they're like oh well yeah i mean it's not that big like you go to a restaurant and you like dump out all the creamers and put yeah. them back and like what the fuck oh, well, well. i dated a guy mm-hmm. oh my gosh i know we're winding up here i dated a guy who used to work it was a little guy who used to work at this coffee shop that was on something called the douglas loop and the coffee shop was right across the street from a Catholic church. And like they, I went in one day and they had this sign that was like Splenda on request for customers only. And I was like, what's like, what's the story there, Owen? And he said that after mass, all the social security ladies would come in and they'd take all of the Splenda and then they would go home. Micro crimes. <laughs> <That's- laughs> You're absolved of your sins. Now let's go steal Splenda. <laughs> what are they doing with all that Splenda? Oh, Betsy's is, she's getting down hard at home with the Splenda, snorting it. All right, it's probably just for the thrill it. of it. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, he's, like, he's like, and I'm like, I'm like, not before mass, and he would be like, no, he's like, we're both Catholic, and he's like, at least if it's like before mass. <laughs> What do you want to stick in your sweaty brazier and it starts getting, you know, wet and <laughs> well, then they dissolves. were just like outright. Like they would come in with like a tote and then just like scrape it. Like like seriously. Like yeah. he's like, it's expensive. He's like, they don't take the sweet and low. I'm like, yeah, have you ever had sweet and low? Just look them in the eye as they're doing it. I'm old. Yeah. What are you gonna do about it? I don't know yeah. any are we, better. Are we done here? Are we I think we're done yeah, here? Yeah, I, I think that's good. Uh, All right. Thanks, fellas, for having me on. Yeah. Home. You have to come on again sometime. Yes. Thanks. Yeah. This time I'll actually like get drunk with you. So. Yeah. If we can record on not a Monday, we could definitely do. Well, I may get drunk on Monday. I don't. Yeah. I'm not opposed to it. It's just it's not my day, man. I gotta get used to this. All I right. Stuff to do after we're done. I'll yeah. talk to y'all later. Yeah. Thanks. We'll see you. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.